Hello everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads. As we so often do when we're jumping between books, we decide to take a nice little interlude doing short stories. This week, we have a couple recommendations from BJ. But, to start us off, as per usual, I'm Spencer, and joining me are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? I'm well, thank you, Spencer. <laughs> oh, God, I'm never sure uh, we just lose radio. <laughs> Every now and then we just have a pause in the Skype connection. I'm like, I'll just wait it out. <laughs> And the funny part is, once I edit this, that, that blank space will not be there at all. And so it'll just be like immediately talking afterward. It'll be Boy, great. Yeah. Like, well, I'm <laughs> good, Spencer. We BJ, how are you? Um, I'm doing well. <laughs> you know what? We're just too damn polite. That's the problem. Everybody's waiting for the next person's opportunity to jump in. Exactly. Um, wow. so, so, these, uh, so I figured what we do for the next couple of episodes while we do our short stories before we uh, jump into The Water Dancer by... Tanahesi Coates um, is uh, the uh, nominations for I can't remember if it's the Hugo or the Nebula now um, came out um, recently and I think mm-hmm. it's the Nebula um, anyway and so basically we're going to quickly go through the six stories that were nominated for a short story um, and hopefully do, do them in pairs and, and just do a little bit of a summary, how we like them, and maybe at the end, sort of have a, a ranking or something like that. Um, and so, kind of like a an Oscars watch party, but much more our our style. And and I did I pulled up the email tea. you sent. It is the Hugo Awards, just so our our okay. listeners know where to go. Yes, okay. um, and, and that will be posted on uh, on on our website. Mm-hmm. And- BJ, while Sarah so oftenly finds a pairing of drinks to go with each particular episode, and Sarah will get to that in just a second, you were the one who decided how to pair these stories. And I think you did a masterstroke with respect to these two stories, just in how much these two are in some ways talking about the same theme, but from a completely different perspective. Yeah, I, so these sort of had like a similar... Um, I, so, so they are the first two in the list that that came out, but I did read most of uh, most of the short stories, and these felt like they kind of went together. Um, there are two stories that I would say orbit around uh, events in World War II, um, mm-hmm. and I think are two incredibly different perspectives and sides of this uh, of maybe fallout. I would say from World War II um, and. Um, written from sort of two, I would say, somewhat unique perspectives compared to what is fairly heavily out there. One being um, a, I would say, more Japanese perspective, um, and one being a, a Indian uh, or uh, Bangladeshi, I believe, perspective. Mm-hmm. But before we get into the meat of these, as we so often like to start, Sarah, I believe you have a drink for us this week. I do, and I have decided to do the Venn diagram between these two stories, which, as we will talk about, (laughs) is uh, heavily influenced by colonialism as a thing in the world. Um, And I have made a more or less traditional blood and sand cocktail, uh, which felt both violent and exotic in all the right ways. (laughs) Um, so it's in it. So a blood and sand cocktail is actually equal parts of all of the ingredients. So it's equal parts orange juice, um, whiskey, and it's supposed to be a wild cherry flavored brandy, which I will give my uh, twist on in a moment, and a sweet vermouth. So it's got this beautiful kind of, oh, sort of dusky red color to it. Um, and it 
it because it is equal parts of all of them it does you can totally taste the whiskey i've used a rye whiskey that my husband used on whiskey on the weekends um to you to make his sazerac and so it's got that little bit of a, a punch to it but it also has a very orangey kind of bitter orange aftertaste to it um which kind of cleanses everything out because it is a little sweet on the front end. And so I did not have wild cherry flavored brandy uh, because, and because we are in lockdown, I was not going to go buy wild cherry flavored brandy uh, to add one more bottle to my bar and collapse it into the crawl space. Um, and so I did, I was trying to get that red color that I think the brandy imparts to it. And so I did a little bit of, uh, well, I did a little bit of a sort of beet liqueur that I've been trying to get rid of, um, but then I cut that with Campari to get the extra bit of sweetness in it uh, with a little bit of fruit flavor and the red coloring. And it's a very pretty drink. Uh, it's also like, it is really, really good. It's been a little bit rainy here today. And so this is not like the light effervescent drink um, that I would normally do in springtime um but it's got a little bit of a more heavier flavor to it which i really enjoy sounds good a little bit yeah. on the the more bitter probably from the campari that bitter orange mm-hmm. flavor mm-hmm. cool and in memory serves the blood and sand is a pretty old cocktail too like early 20th century in terms of when they came up with it i believe that's true um i got the recipe from a Mr. Boston deluxe official bartender's guide that a friend of mine bought me in Asheville that also has handwritten recipes just stuck in it. So who knows? <laughs> that just sounds like a great book to have around. <laughs> well, in going through our short stories, I think we agreed that we'll start with As the Last I May Know by... What's this fellow's name? Does anyone know? Do you, do you know the author, PJ? Uh, no. Yeah, had not heard of him before. Or, or, I don't know offhand with SL, hard to say. But uh, I think we'll go into a quick little plot forca- uh, recount of this one first. So, uh, anyone would like to start us off? Otherwise, I can take a swing at it. Um, I'll quickly say um, all the images indicate that this person is female. Okay. That is, that is true. Um, and I would just like to point out at the outset that I don't know, it's not on her website necessarily, um, but if the little um, kind of preview in the Google search that you get, if you search for her name, says S.L. Mm-hmm. Huang, speculative fiction author, mathematician, gunslinger. And I yeah. have thoughts about this as a sort of tagline. <laughs> so apparently they, they did a quick uh, blurb on her in sci-fi okay. um, that spelled the worst way possible. Um, and she graduated from MIT with a math degree and then pursued a career as a stunt woman armorer. As one does. As one does. Um, and then uh, tried her hand at speculative fiction, I guess. And... I think is fairly successful doing so. Oh, apparently she's been a stunt woman or, well, I'm not sure if she's been a stunt woman or a firearms expert, but one of them on Battlestar Galactica. Huh. This sounds like a fascinating person to share a drink with. Mm-hmm. Sarah, if you'd like to propose that she come enjoy a blood and sand with us, <laughs> yes. that might be a lot of fun. <laughs> I will uh, she- uh, slide into her DMs. You're going down her list of fun facts. Her opening fun fact is that she likes durian, which is a bit of a flaw in my mind. But you know, from there it improves. Do not like durian. 
Uh, but the story itself. This yeah. is a story, like you said, BGA, this, I would say this officially would qualify as a bit of a science fiction story, because it seems to be set in the future by at least 100 or so years, mm-hmm. but is explicitly a Japanese perspective in the aftermath of World War II. Yeah. Of how, uh, of it is a society that is not, totally not Japan, but is Japan, that its capital, a uh, bit of a difference between World War II, uh, what was hit by a series missile, a stand-in for nuclear weapons, and utterly destroyed. Mm-hmm. Everyone in it evaporated. And though they survived that war and seemingly emerged in a pretty solid position, mm-hmm. a group known as the Order developed, which has put laws in place that require that though they will maintain these series missiles, though they will maintain the ability to inflict the same harm that was done on them onto others, the requirement before any leader may use them is that he drive a knife into the in, into the heart of a small child retainer that's always there with him and pluck the codes literally out from there so as to then, you know, put them into the nuclear fo- football and bring about the end of the world. This is the legal requirement that's put in place and pretty much before the present, everyone has understood, well, that, okay, well, obviously that is a clear bar on ever even considering this. Don't have to worry about it. Until this most recent election where seemingly several candidates were put forward due to, I guess, what is described as being wars around the margins of the empire, mm-hmm. that are increasingly more willing to consider this otherwise unthinkable proposition. Yeah, the, I, mm-hmm. I, was, I, I think it's entertaining, like, reading it right now, but I think it will be, again, dated, because there is a very clear reference to Trump. Oh, yeah, the... Uh, the, the, the um, the populist who's ra- the populist rabble rouser who's getting people excited about using whatever weapons are necessary. Uh, yeah. I think it was even I think it was even a pretty direct Trump quote about the use of nuclear weapons in there. Yes, um, but clearly isn't because this one is female and um, you know it and faded at, from that polling. Now. Yeah, <laughs> yes. that, that is well more than that is more than enough of a difference to avoid any possible slander charge. Um, but that candidate it fuzzes out or burns out. But another candidate is asked one question on point and offers enough of an answer that it raises the order's concerns that he may actually be considering this. But it's late enough of the race that he gets elected before any more follow-up questions can be asked about how serious he is about considering it. So because he's not willing to disavow the use of these series weapons, the order has to go through the motions of invoking these now ancient law. I think the bombing occurred more than 100 years in the past and send a junior member of their order, whose parents died and she was raised essentially as an orphan, for this explicit purpose, along with her classmates, to be his body man, to escort him around, to carry his books, to be next to him at all times, purposefully, so that in the event that he feels the need to use nuclear weapons in this war that is looming on the margins, she will be available to uh, provide a means to that end. Yeah, and I think that's sort of a general thing. They're just more worried that, like, he seems to be more considering it than yeah. anybody else yeah. that might have been expected to right. to win. Any, seemingly anybody previously. It doesn't seem like this is something... The Order has these these um, various methods in place based on the ancient laws, but it doesn't seem like they've had to invoke them in a very long time. Yeah, and so the other thing that we start to get is that this uh, girl... Uh, young girl. She's like young eight girl. at the start of the story or something like that. Like uh, Nima, Nima... Um, mm-hmm is a fan of poetry and this is one of the things that gives her comfort and something and one of her few interests that that we sort of see over the course of the story Mm -hmm. um and so 
Because there's really only three characters in this story, I would say, that are any, any significance. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Her, her, her teacher, and the president. Um, so, uh, prime. prime minister? Oh, if it's, if it's Japan's standing to be a prime minister, but I actually don't know what title they give him in this. I don't remember offhand. Um, yeah, I, I don't see it quickly browsing. So the, the prime minister, president, what, the leader, or whatever, mm-hmm. is Otto Hahn. Um, and the her uh, teacher mentor, slash guardian mm-hmm. Tej, her mentor is Tej. Totally a mentor. <laughs> yes, this is fair. <laughs> it works here. It does. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this story we don't have to go into much in the way of details. We can go discuss more with respect to our feelings and response. But this story basically follows her tale of being the girl in the tower, mm-hmm. as there is an. In- this war is getting increased. While they have original hopes it will resolve quickly, it instead starts to become an imminent active threat to the homeland of where there are air raids, there are talks of, talks of a land invasion, and the amount of desperation not only in the president but also in the people is starting to grow to consider what had previously just been a, a barbaric custom that would, of course, never be invoked. I mean, he when, when the president first meets um, Naima and Tej, he goes into a very hypocritical lecture to them about their barbarism that they would even put this in place. Yeah. But it, of course, would be him that is doing the murder to bring about the end of the world. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. The, the hypocrisy of it, I think, is very... is sort of one of the things that the U.S. has tried to come to terms with with having used a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of one of those things. It's like, well, you know, w- at what point is it reasonable? And I think this sort of mm-hmm. plays into that a lot because at the beginning of the story, uh, Nama is basically an unknown. She's a faceless little girl, and he still finds it terrible. And over the course of the story, uh, Otto gets to know her, and yes. and that's part of they become sorry. That's part of the order's point. Mm-hmm. Right is and, to is and, to personalize this whole thing, and 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 that's part of the reason they they insert her into the daily life of the of of Otto, and they encourage her to develop talents mm-hmm. and skills, things to distinguish her to make her a person that is therefore harder to kill. And as the, as things get worse and worse around around the borders, uh, Tej himself starts to take active steps to make her even more of a person, not just to the president but to the broader society to fight, as he puts it, a war. A, a war against an enemy other than the uh, island states that they're fighting, mm-hmm. a war within society itself, by making her a celebrity. He... And, and publishing her poems. And, and I think that's sort of one of the things that I really liked about the story is it has the poems. It doesn't just yes. reference that she's into poetry. It has the poems, and I, I think that they're evocative. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one that, that talks about the use of, of these nuclear weapons is... Uh, the snow that falls over nothing. I beg three small greys uh, to place incense, but echoes have no tombs. Did anyone look up whether that poet that she's referencing is a real person? I did not, no. I think I looked up the poems and I got directed to this, um, okay. but I didn't look too deeply. It would, um, it, would ma- it would make more sense that they're not really a real person, because this is meant, very yeah. specifically meant to be another world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the next one, when, they're, when she's initially introduced to Otto is that she thinks of is i listened to us surrender on the wireless no choice they said they said the same when we went to war which to me really cemented that this is a world war ii aftermath sure yeah uh, and i think um, oh, do we get three poems over the course of this uh, we, get, we actually get a couple more um 
We certainly get the one that closes the book out, but I think we get one more before then. Okay, too. so maybe it's uh, four. So, so um, very early on, um, sort of right after this, he starts talking to her. Um, and this is sort of early on in their relationship, and, and he basically asks her, like, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, you know, I'm trying to uh, work on my poetry. And so he asks um, to hear one, and she, she says, uh, peach petals drift down, cheerful pink snow, and I class them to me as the last I may know. And so which that's he, where the... Which is the poem he, that she does not tell him. It's the one, first one that comes to mind, but she tells him something else that does not actually appear in the text, I don't think. Yes, that, that is true. You're right. And it's this poetry that is really the basis of the personal connection that the Order was trying to get her to form um, with Otto. Mm-hmm. And I mean, from here, the personal connection is developed. Mm-hmm. We see Otto is a much more rounded person than the tale originally presents him as. A much more conflicted person than the tale originally presents him as. And we see I'll that particularly just, as as um, this conflict to goes to hell, and he is faced with many different inflection points of when to choose or not to do this. Right. Um, and proves ultimately unable to do it. Mm-hmm. Even when he wishes to make a decision, he breaks at the last second of being able to do it, and just orders his generals to find another way. And I mean, the tale pretty much ends on a point of a bit, of, a bit of point of ambiguity. We see this moment of when she's being called to the block and marches willingly, the martyr to the cause, in very much classic sense. She is granted a stay of execution. She returns to a room for Tej to come in and give her an opportunity to escape. That uh, we can get you out of this, we can smuggle out of this, to which she assumes he means I'll find a different person to, to take up this role. But what he actually means is we'll end the custom. We'll just give him the codes. Because he's now reached a, a bit of a, a moral ethical point of where he can, inc- he's finding it increasingly more difficult to oppose the idea of using them with how desperate things are getting. To which she has to, in some ways, remind him what the purpose of all this is: is that the object, the reason that we put this in place, is not to prevent their use. It's to make it hard. It's to make it hurt. It's to make it put it in the mind of the person that's doing it of what the effect of it is. So it's not just faceless casualties on the horizon. It is lives of innocence that you are killing. If you think it is justifiable enough to kill one here in front of you, fine, we'll give you that key. But not otherwise other than that. That is the purpose behind this. And so she refuses. She refuses to, to leave. She refuses to abandon what she's spent her entire life being or knowing that she could be. And the story ends with her alone, things getting more and more to hell, her constantly waiting in execution, which... A chapter earlier, she was actually willing to die rather than have that continue to hang over her head like a sword of Damocles. But here she sits, willingly assuming her role, but with a haunting exit poem of where, I'm here to make you doubt. You wish I weren't. I hold no answers in my loaded heart. I only sit and wait and wait and wait. So, and I, I, unless you guys want to reference any of the points, I think, I think that finishes our plot recap of that one. And um, we yep. can move on to our next story in terms of, or do we want to discuss this one first? Um, let's talk about this one a little bit first. Sure. Um, for maybe a couple of minutes, maybe talk about sort of main themes and, and stuff like that. I think we're going to maybe save our reactions until the end, but mm. I think it's one question that I, I have just because we ended right, you ended right on this point, Spencer, and you, so you read this last poem in a very particular voice, I think that seemed like a sort of, and tell me if I'm wrong, that seemed like you were reading it as a sort of um, uh, resignation, perhaps, would be the tone. 
I, 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 that was the tone I originally read it as, mm -hmm. but even as I was just talking about it right now, I see a certain element of steadfast, steadfastness attached to it, too, because she's been given an out for this role. She's been given two separate outs, both death and also the right to flee, but has chosen otherwise. Okay. And she has embraced the role to a certain degree. So there may be a certain degree of resignation, but there also may be a certain sense of, again, the martyr going willingly to this fate, mm -hmm. of where this this is a role that society needs. This is something by which we as a people have decided, and I am willing to bear that cross. Uh, what about you, BJ? How do you read that last poem? What tone do you inflect into it? Um, I guess somewhat resignation. Mm -hmm. um, and and I guess kind of uh, also maybe just a wa like watching the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because essentially what the other side of what she's doing is basically observing a world that is not going to exist later mm -hmm. sort of no matter what the outcome is i guess the indication that i have is either they use these these and it completely changes the landscape of what is happening in their area whether they win or lose the war or they don't and that's kind of presumably the end of their nation mm -hmm. in some ways even with though the order has encouraged her to develop individual talents and things to distinguish her, even from their perspective, she's still a prop. She's still a thing. She's still a, being assigned a role. But as a result of the actions of her mentor, in terms of making her more a person to more than just the president, she's allowed to kind of some some ways escape from that role and kind of take her own meaning attached to it. But it's still, as you said, BJ, in the sense of she has been given an opportunity to have perspective on a whole world. To be operate outside necessarily the confines and placed upon her, but there's a certain element of helplessness attached to that. Yeah, and there's a certain amount of impersonality to it as well. And part of, and we'll we'll talk about this a little bit later. But one of the things that I wish, just when you were reading that poem, if I were divorcing it from what the narrative is doing exactly before this poem at the very end, the way I want to read the poem is in anger. Mm. I want her yeah. to be angry. With, without context, I think it could definitely be read that way. Yeah. But like you said, it, it is coming directly after something. She's not a kid. She has a few moments of anger, but she seems like she's gotten free of them by the point that she starts to say this poem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. So and I that think term that... free is really interesting. And maybe we can talk about that too later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, she, the way she describes it as one of the moments that she's been angry at a few people, but she describes at one point as, is this what it feels like to go from being a child to an adult? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so when, you know, we did this a little bit with spinning silver, but if I were to edit this, I would take out the last two and wait. Oh, interesting. And just have, I only sit and wait and then end it because then I feel like it's more encompassing of, resignment mm -hmm. anger like it, it just ha it, I feel, it feels more rounded as opposed to like now it's i only sit and wait and wait mm -hmm. and wait and and so that to me really speaks to a resignment and yeah. a finality and um right. rather than sort of a completion of what she's aiming for because she talks about how like this her search for being able to write a poem without rhyming mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say that it's a bit of a common trope in terms of Japanese literature to discuss the idea of self-sacrifice for culture. And I think this book is going into about two different separate perspectives on it. Of both hers, of where she has, she is given a certain measure of choice that they question, of where it's the choice of a child. I think they even debate in the story about whether should this not be something that only an adult can take on, rather than someone who is conditioned to accept this from the very much get-go. 
But there's also a sense of self-sacrifice attached to the role of the president, too, of where he is being called upon to do a what everyone in society is going to accept as a fundamentally unethical act because he views it as necessary from the broader perspective of the greater good. Uh, he's having to take that blood on his hands. As, you know, as Truman himself once quipped, actually it's a, fun, it's a, bit, of a bit of history, but do you guys, do you guys know uh, who Robert, Oppen Robert, Robert Oppenheimer was? Uh, I, I'm, yeah. Oh, yeah, more or uh, less. He, he was one of the lead scientists on the Manhattan Project, mm -hmm. one of the key people that was responsible for helping us develop the atomic bomb. And famously, after we nuked Japan, he was okay the first time, sec after the second time, he developed some very, um, I'd say, anti-nuclear views with respect to um, nuclear weapons existing in the world. And he arranged for an opportunity to meet with President Truman a few months after the war to lobby in favor of, a of an international treaty banning nuclear weapons. And Truman agreed to meet him, nice guy that he was. Um, but one of the first things Oppenheimer said in terms of talking about this is that I feel like I have blood on my hands. And it drove Truman into an abject rage. He threw Oppenheimer out of the room and yelled and yelled after him and to his subordinates that there's, if there's any blood on their hand, if there's any blood on hands, it's on mine. Don't forget it. And tossed him out. But there's, a, there's a, I think, a definite sense in the story of where she's being forced to, you know, bear this cross, to bear this in impossible burden of constantly having the idea of death just hanging over in a way that would just shatter a person emotionally. But it's also being put on the president, too, from some perspective of where he's the one that's being called to, you know, bear the sins of society to do what he feels is necessary, do what other people feel feel is necessary. And as we see him go through the emotional response, that's not necessarily easy either. Mm -hmm. um, so the other thing that I was going to mention is he's also uh, later to have uh, been attributed with the uh, now and become death, the destroyer of worlds, which I yes. feel like mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. oft quoted. And, and, and uh, also around. ties us into also ties us into Indian mythology, which we're going to get to here yes. in a minute too. Um, but in terms of other broad themes, uh, what else did you guys recognize or make note of in this? It's definitely going to have an emotional reaction. We're going to talk about later. But yeah. We can get to that kind of. We're discussing both stories. I think the other things that I want to talk about with the story are better done in comparison um, with the other story. Okay. Well, Why don't we, we do that. I mean, just a, as, a, as, a, as a key theme to note here, a, we mentioned anti-colonial before, before we were referring to, mm -hmm. or at least a, a post-colonial mindset. Japan was never a colony, but existed very much in the idea of, you know, black ships and unequal treaties, and mm -hmm. has a certain perspective on the idea of foreign influence and foreign effect, and how that governs their current policy. And also, nukes well, have a sense. I would say that they did sort of participate-ish in some colonial... I about to get into that where they, <laughs> okay. they were they were an active colonial power themselves in partially in response to the idea if you can't beat them and you're not want to be beaten by them join them yeah um and yeah that goes into a bit of what we hear about you know who is the greater power why is this war with the islands happening and some implication that maybe story history is repeating mm -hmm. but uh i think we kind of have to discuss that from this a non-Western perspective on the idea of foreign influence and foreign effect and what that has kind of bleeds us into what the setting of our next story is going to be, I think, more directly. Of where our next story is, I wouldn't necessarily, is not sci-fi. I'd almost in some ways struggle to necessarily say it's fantasy up until the very damn end of it. It is set in a very historical moment of where you can even tie it to a year. It is set in the year 1943 through early 1944 in Bengal during the middle of the Bengal famine, Bengali famine, in World War II, mm -hmm. yeah. from the perspective of a character named Appa, which for the first like 20 pages of the story, I struggled to not see as a Korean shop owner, 
uh, <laughs> a la Kim's Convenience. Uh, I will readily admit that I, I did have the same thought, though. <laughs> really had a hard time with that for a minute. Yeah. Uh, not at all appropriate for the story ultimately no. goes. But uh, she is a peasant existing on a relatively isolated area in uh, Midnapur, who her job is to take this particular... Um, Oh, I'm blanking on the name of this product. Jute. 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 Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is kind of, uh, BJ, you, may have know, you guys may know this better than I do, but it's like a tall grass that kind of similar to hemp can be worked into all kinds of certain products. Yeah, it's a yeah. pretty stiff fiber um, that is mm-hmm. that is frequently used mostly for feed and kind of rope making. Um, it's not a mm-hmm. fiber that is soft enough to mostly be used in like clothing or anything like that, but it is um, used in a whole bunch Wikipedia of products. Wikipedia would disagree with you. <laughs> oh, really? But... That's understandable. Yeah, and um, it, it it has been used. My assumption is once cotton and other things that were a little bit more amenable to comfortable clothing and things like that were available. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like hemp quickly... is used for clothing. <laughs> oh yeah, right. I mean, I've heard it, I've heard it described in terms of clothing as being roughly the consistency of burlap, unless you do things to it. People did wear a lot of burlap historically. Sure, it's just they didn't have an alternative. Yeah, but, but in particular, she makes products. She makes goods, particularly dolls associated with this product. Yeah. But I was going to say, I also envision her more as like a matriarch of like an area. A, she's in a leadership position. She seems, yeah. to, she seems to be the uh, wizened, respected elder with respect to this community. Well, and the part of that is due of, to the fact that she is an artisan. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, I was uh, going to uh, say, speaking of, of old people, my, I was talking to my mother and she kind of classified <laughs> this as, a little bit more as horror. This, this uh, particular story? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair in some ways. Um, um, and I guess the other question I had before we get too deep into the story is, Sarah, have you ever worked with it? No, I have not. Okay. No, I, I, I have not. I have, I've seen it um, and seen people work with it, but it's not anything I've ever dealt with. Mm-hmm. Partially because it seems terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Which is even described to a bit in the story yeah. where she goes on and on about how useful it is, how many things you use it for, all while she's constantly impaling her fingers and getting blood soaked into this product. Yeah. Sorry, you guys cut out for a second. You still there? Yeah. Okay. I was going to say that I think there are other things that, um, so in cooking, people talk about mandolins this way. Mm-hmm. Like, it's hungry for blood and it will get it. <laughs> like, you know, there's no question. There's just a question of how much and how quickly. Mm hmm. In terms of what her role is, it's real. You can view it in terms of its raw terms as being pretty mundane. She is an artisan. She has a respected position in the community. Her particular trade is kind of implied to be dying. Of where this is an, an imminently useful product. And looking it up, good lord, do India and Bangladesh make a hell of a lot of this of this particular um, of this particular plant for various purposes? But her use of it as an artisan is much more of an ancient trade where she's pretty much the only practitioner in her community and possibly the mm-hmm. last practitioner unless she can find somebody else to pass this on to. Right. As she talks about it, though, you wonder, she describes it in semi, semi-magical terms um, of where it's a product that remembers, of where there's a certain element of will that goes into it. She tr- makes clear to say that it's not necessarily a magic or secret or anything else, uh, but that it has a will and it has a connection to things. Uh, that you can, particularly that you can exert and share with it. Uh, so I think she as being not necessarily like a master and a slave, but two friends working side by side in terms of what you can bring about with it. Yeah, and I, I would say that, like, while it does have some magical overtones, I would say that a lot of 
um, artisans that I've heard yes. talk about working with living material very much talk about that. I'm a lot more familiar with like the woodworking side of things, but it's, you know, a lot of what comes out of a piece of work is dictated by what you're working with and, and how the wood was formed and, and, you know, what it looks like and things like that. Right. And, and, and I interpret these early lines as being poetic turns of phrase. Uh, similar yeah. to how an, similar to how a marble worker describes that I didn't make it, I just merely unleashed it from the block of marble. Uh, there's a lot of poet. Okay, there's a lot of Michelangelo. Po- yes, there's a lot of poetic turns of phrase that go into how artists describe their particular trade. But for this, it's purposely meant to be very mundane to start because she's working on her porch. She's just observing the countryside. Her grandson is he literally her grandson, or is he a stand-in for a grandson-like figure? Unclear. Yeah, yeah I would say even even if. I don't remember if it even says grandson, but, like, there's no way, because, like, everybody's referred to, like, his auntie and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, um, he, he calls her grandma, but that could be anything. That could just yeah. be, you are the old woman in this community. But he's, the, he's there and very much eager to help after he drank all of his milk, which he's very proud about. <laughs> and they're just kind of plugging away on a porch before a decidedly colonial figure in the form of a British Army officer rides up on a horse to their porch to make a request on behalf of the local governor. Uh, yeah, and basically he demands that um, Appa makes a doll for yeah. uh, the governor of bengal's what? wife daughter daughter I wife uh, i think it's wife later on they say it's wife right now you okay. just think he wants a doll i don't think they yeah. clearly specify and uh, well they say it's for her ladyship so ah uh, you're right yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah um and at least at present they're being relatively polite about it forceful they're not well. necessarily giving her a choice it's a <laughs> it's a hobson's choice before you take this or something's gonna happen but i mean offering- when you when you ride up to uh, somebody with guns out, like it uh, doesn't even have a, gun a out. so what? I don't, he doesn't have a gun out at this stage. That's later. <laughs> there is a gun involved, though. The gun is there. She yeah. certainly does not have a gun. In, in, right. This, this is being done through the polite means of British colonialism, of where you don't have a choice. <laughs> I'm actually drawing a bit of a contrast between other colonial powers because the British liked to do this at the time, of where it is being done by means of force. But they ask first. We don't yes. just go into the community okay. and remove everybody's right hand. We give you the option and we pay you for your services as part of our process of integrating you into the society with our white man's burden. Well, this is this is part of the narrative that has to be spun going back to the motherland, right? Yes, because um, this this is no longer this is an in India no longer under the control of the of the British East India Company. This is the British Raj. This is mm-hmm. directly reporting to the British government. There are governmental obligations attached. Yeah, but. and and we even so you know if if you would only you know produce this we'll we'll be more than kind to you we will let you eat. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's later. <laughs> uh, right? Not, but it's right not always the implication. Well, right now they're offering to pay her. Um, uh, yeah, uh, but so she refuses, and we don't really understand necessarily why at this point, other than it's not something for them. Uh, we it's more clearly established later that she's pretty goddamn anti-colonial in terms of her perspective, but right now she just seems to be saying that this is a unique product that's made as part of an alliance between both the creator and the pro- and, and the uh, tools themselves. It's not something that can be given away willy-nilly to somebody that asks for it, particularly to you. It's also, and, and this is wrapped up in what you were, what you were saying, Spencer, but I, I just want to make clear that it is 
It is a question of it is her choice who is going who she is going to bestow these dolls on. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's not an option when it comes to the British colonial authorities. And I think that this sort of has to do and it's well, we'll probably get to this more later, but it's basically a stand in for accept like a cultural acceptance. Yes. Um and, and she's unwilling to give it and so and, and so you know, this is essentially like she and she's also unwilling to talk to them in her language because of how they butcher it. The, and the, the, impli- the implication being is that he starts talking in her language and she transitions it to English because of how offensive it is to her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he accepts this in the sense that he tells her there's going to be hell to pay if she doesn't agree. But he does go away for the moment. He does go away for the moment. And then we get what is a very stark scene transition of where you go from this moment, sitting on the porch, comfortable everything else, to... Her fields are burned down. Her entire community is dead. She's starving to death. Having her last memory be the idea of this grandson figure with a bloated belly begging for begging for mercy as he dies there in front of her. There's no context provided between these two moments. It's from that to that. I don't think we no- need a lot of context because it's like bad things will happen. Bad things, bad things happen. did happen. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it, you know, but, it's a very straightforward. But they didn't, though. This is not something that was specifically caused to her, as it establishes clear later. This is something that is occurring to an entire region that she's in some ways secondary to. Or presumably should have, could have been plucked out of because he knew it was coming or whatever it is. Like, yes. I, like, I assume it's a bad things are going to happen and we can either make sure they don't happen to you or not take you out of here. You know, not rescue the one person that we sort of care about because you make pretty dolls. Well, and this is kind of the interesting flux in this story is, are you making threats as an individual? And are you and are you sort of subject to threats as an individual? Or are you making and subject to threats as a colonial power and a colonial subject? Mm-hmm. And I mean, our transition moments are basically, in some before the Japanese have conquered Burma and you know, are invading the, the margins of India. And then after, when we are stark dead in the middle of the Bengali famine, which, if our listeners don't know, is one of the worst famines of the 20th century between one and, like, two... One, one and low two million people died over the mm-hmm. course of about a year and a half period. And as far as I understand, a lot of it was the British are just like, we're not going to leave rice for the... In- well, there are a bunch of other factors, but yeah. along with it was... We're going to burn all of the rice and all of the boats so the Japanese can't use them. Mm-hmm. And that's, been, that's become part of, that, that is what the story focuses on as being what, what happened. It's become part of popular consciousness, particularly in, in, in the Indian anti-colonial movement. I would say it's heavily exaggerated in terms of what they actually did and is one of a variety of factors that were in place for why this happened, including the Japanese destroying basically all shipping happening in the Indian Ocean in a very rapid period of time. There, you know, there was a overpopulation probably that contributed to the to to the famine, as like, well as some like lean- five five hundred thousand refugees from Burma suddenly entering Bengal. That's going to be a problem. Yeah. Or- so there are a lot of problems, but compounding the problems, there was a there there were at least numerous instances of essentially a scorched earth policy that weren't helping the yeah. issue. And overlying all of it is the fact of British colonialism to begin with. Sure. Right. 
I mean, unquestionably, one of the key parts of the Bengali famine was a failure. was a failure of colonial administration, of where there were there was an ability by which they could have helped. It was going to happen. There was going to be a famine. That there was just no way to avoid that. The reason it was so damn bad, though, was the administration's response was both slow and at times imminently unhelpful. The reasons for why that is and what factors go into place are debated by historians forever, but this story is very much focused on the perspective of an individual that is suffering on the ground and does not give a damn what the wartime concerns are that are informing why this is happening. Yeah, yeah. and I think I do think it's still important to, to point out that like we are assuming the colonial over overstructure of this the whole thing. Um, it is unclear um, to what extent the like actual presence of British colonialism in this moment is driving all of these factors that we're talking about. Right. Yeah. It's also an important thing to note, too. This story is not literally focused on British colonialism. It is not literally focused on what actually happened. It is purposely doing a characterization of it as the ending makes imminently clear. Yes. Which, which was the lived experience on the ground for millions right. of people. Yeah. This, isn't, this is describing an emotional depiction of history, a perspective that comes from the pain and trauma of it rather than necessarily the literal of it, particularly in the degree of wish fulfillment that informs where our characters go with it. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that the, the trauma of it is, is literal. Yes. The trauma of it is literal. This happened. Millions died. Right. The, the uh, response to it, we're going to go into that now. Yes. Of where we find her is pretty much, I would say, the sole survivor in her community. And the colonial authorities have returned, seemingly specifically for her, to find out whether she's still alive. And they save her life for their own yep. purposes, but mm-hmm. they force feed her back into life uh, as the sole remaining survivor who maintains these talents. And once they've got her in a state by which she can understand their questions and respond to them... They essentially say that, okay, so you're alive now, and we're going to keep you alive whether you want to be or not. How long that chooses to last is dependent solely on your willingness to make us a doll right now under what terms you want to set. You don't have a choice about whether you make a doll, but we're going to let you decide how that process occurs. Uh, With the original guy, I I think it's Captain Bolton is the name of the immediate army contact. Yes. Setting this out to her with several guards on point. She's originally resistant because she literally, or again, her memory is her grandson dying on the ground there in front of her and her blaming the British for what has happened. But an idea jumps into her head that the story makes very little effort to describe to us until we get to the end. Of where she's seemingly going to do something with this doll. And where I almost wonder with the story to what degree we're supposed to have a bit of a background knowledge about some of the, of the words that are being used and about some of the cultural uh, motifs that are attached to them. Because... Very little is explained. There's a lot of references, but very little is explained to us as the casual reader about what's necessarily going on. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so mm-hmm. the the putul, probably pronouncing that terribly, but the putul is uh, does reference a doll, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. they apparently were very prescribed in like what you could make, what you would make, and how you would make it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I think that there is some of that information from what I found there it there it was not uh a jute doll mm-hmm. but i assume that there were some and it might be specifically bengali but um some of the things that that i googled netted google results that were not in english and and <laughs> I, there's almost only so much of a spencer hole that i was willing to get down <laughs> 
Men, well, we are in quarantine time, BJ. Uh, men, there's definitely a lot of references here to aspects of uh, Hindu mythology, and like mm-hmm. even, even to off ones too. Like when she says what was done with uh, the nephew's body, where he was cast to Lord Agni, who is the mm-hmm. who is the Lord of Fire under the, under the Hindu pantheon. So he was cast into the flames and burned burned in a bonfire. But she gets this idea, which we don't know yet, of where she needs four days to make a doll. They agree, but she's going to be under armed guard the entire time because they fully anticipate that she's going to possibly kill herself or try to hurt somebody else. But she makes this doll, all while she's staring out at this um, banyan tree that's across the way where previously the British apparently would just hang people. Uh, and and then people hang themselves. To escape the, the pain yeah. of the uh, starvation that was coming upon them. But now all the bodies are down because people need the rope. That's the level of society we're at right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, she finishes this doll. The guards, the captain comes back, and she essentially strong arms slash blackmails him into needing to come with him to present the doll personally, because it is a laughing doll, and she will not and explain how it works, and she needs to be the one that presents it as the nature of the product. She also frames this as that, A, if you let me do this, I won't resist or cause any problems, and B, if you bring me there, I can teach other people how to do this, and you know how much your governor likes this thing, he could make more. He could offer them to more yeah. people. He could sell them. It's a great idea. To which even the captain, asshole that he is, compliments her for, for, for framing this in a way he can accept and justify. Um, and so this is also um, previously when she was making dolls, she was very careful to not allow blood to get on them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this time, like, she, she soaks it in her blood, essentially. Yeah, she soaks it in her blood, and she very much styles it in the particular way of a... British lady, I would say, in terms of the style and the dress and the appearance. To the point I was almost wondering whether it was going to be a bit of a voodoo doll. Um, oh. It's not how it works out, but it was being framed in that manner. Yeah. Uh, they it's also were... not not how it works out. Yeah. Right. That, that's what I was like, well, it's, yeah. it's got an element to it. Uh, they then proceed to march to the regional capital of Bengal, uh, which they go through what is best described as a charnel house. They are walking through devastation everywhere. Burned fields and people burned in them, death and decay all around. This is an area that is devastated and rendered lifeless as far as the eye can see. And all through this, she's just hearing this utterly removed commentary from the soldiers that she's traveling with that are, while while seeing this complete devastation of India, are talking about a distant war, to which in their minds India is only a minor part in which they're serving the noble cause and even defending, which I think in some ways further hardens her to what she's intending to do. They arrive in the middle of the governor and his ladyship's party, and she, they're ushered in, and in a very awkward conversation, while she's present, the captain is complimented for every aspect of bringing the doll and making the doll there, because she is irrelevant other than as a means to an end. She presents the doll. They asked her to show how this is a laughing doll, and she and does. of course, Captain Bolton's name is Nigel. Yeah. <laughs> British, British is all hell. Again, this is a characterized version of the British. Uh, so, uh, so, guys, what happens when she activates this laughing doll? How does she activate it, and what goes on after that? Um, so I don't remember how she actually activates it. Um, so basically, so she greets everyone and like stares at them intently in turn Mm -hmm. and then basically says, okay, so there's a way to, to activate it where, um, you, you have to do something to it. Um, but she doesn't actually say, 
what that is. But basically, she starts laughing as loud as she can. Mm-hmm. Um, and it then starts it's a, laughing. Then it starts laughing, and then the room starts laughing. Everybody starts laughing, and it's uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and like literally uncontrollable. We are in in Harry Potter, the book you can't stop reading territory. <laughs> yeah, they are laughing uncontrollably up to the point of death. They are freaking yes. hem- they are hemorrhaging on the ground from the sheer f- the effect of just nonstop laughter upon them. But there is an historical preference precedent. People have died from laughing beyond just simply from heart attacks, mm-hmm. uh, including Greek philosophers. They wrote about that back in the day. Apparently, one of the funniest things to Greek philosopher was feeding a donkey uh, alcoholic figs and getting the donkey drunk. Utterly died from the process of how funny that was. Um, and this is why we have. <laughs> YouTube Greek houses named yes. <laughs> <laughs> but not- notably, she before she did this, as we find out later, she has stuck a bit of jute in both of her ears, like 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 impromptu earplugs to yes. seemingly yeah, we shelter have a very, herself. Like Odysseus moment going yes. on here. Uh, uh, this devastates the room. People are dying and dropping. They are begging her for relief and release from this, to which she very coldly refuses. And uh, and. And even more so, and I think this is sort of where it really gets into the feelings about colonialism, is um, one of the servants. Yes. yes. The, the butler who is Bengali. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, she refers to him even as a traitor as he dies there at her feet. Yep. Um, so she leaves the room at the same time soldiers enter, pauses long enough to see that the soldiers are also being similarly affected, and then kind of just goes down to the end of the veranda and sits and waits while thanking the jute for what it has allowed her to do her teammate her partner in this and then then says you know i'll see you soon to the the wind whispering wind of of presumably her grandson i guess and and then she she laughs as a juxtaposition to the colonel laughing or Mm -hmm. the captain laughing at her for refusing him Right. All, all while thinking to herself several times over these last few chapters that if only she could have killed that black devil in London, Sir Winston. Churchill is the ultimate villain of this entire story from the perspective of this. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it ends. So uh, let shall we talk themes? Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about we've talked a little bit about a lot of them as we have gone through. Um, what would you like to talk about? I mean, it, it, this is anti-colonial as shit. This is yes. this is anti-colonial to almost be the point of being a propaganda piece and how damn anti-colonial it is. Yeah. Uh, I, I think mm-hmm. it also plays into a uh, the wise woman trope mm-hmm. of of sort of uh, blood magic and you know having sort of the ultimate last word. Like you underestimate the the you know tiny weathered old lady in the corner and then. She wreaks havoc. But I think yeah. that it's a little more complicated than just that. Um, because that trope plays into exactly the the way of thinking that is at play in this colonialist viewpoint. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we're really kind of subvert... Yes, we end up in the same place. But I think that this story is really sort of co-opting that in in a way that is that is more complicated than just let's look at the little old lady in the corner right I mean, who seems it, to have it, some sort of magic to her it's definitely playing off a lot of the white man's burden tropes of where 
so much of you know British Indian literature worked into the idea of where there was magic in these communities, there is ancient knowledge, but it's in a very much way of this is part of the white man's journey of trying to find this and get this and use it in some way. And isn't yeah. it, it, because what it gets to here, when the white man comes into the situation is like, isn't this novel? Mm-hmm. Isn't this interesting? Right. Which, which is one of the things that a lot of people like to bash on like, um, oh, uh, Rudyard Kipling is being very mm-hmm. much a colonialist figure, is being very much a white man's burden. But in some ways he subverted that with stories like, say, you know, well, a lot of his stories, but particularly examples of being like Gunga Dim. Mm-hmm. Of where that's, that could be very much set up about, oh, yeah, the retainer gave his life to help out the white man or whatever else. But the story's all told in respect of the white guy just describing how much of a better guy the Indian was and how much he was the one, he, he was the true hero of the story, even though I'm still alive for it. Uh, so there has been a tradition in terms of even the British subverting some of their stereotypes when it goes into this. But it is very much a trope in the idea that I shall go to the wizened woman and she shall give me the artifact and that shall be part of my journey or whatever else. Yeah. And then yeah. there's but, the wizened but, woman saying, I will give you the fucking artifact. Yes. Uh, and, and even here, it's even made all the more petty of where the artifact that it's being sold for is not some magic sword or particularly not something to like banish away the famine, which would be the classic example of what this would be. If finding the artifact so you can protect yeah. the people that you're sworn to protect. It's a freaking doll. It is the most... He's intending this as being a gift to his ladyship, a token of his wealth and prestige that he has this kind of forgotten native art available as just a little gift. The, the, the fact that it's even more petty makes it more valuable to him because he can look down on the Indian customs in doing it. it yeah, it's, it's also, you know, sort of the while Rome is burning. Like, yes. you know, the... the yes. well, everything's... What? Sorry, go ahead. I'll, I'll point after you're done. Okay, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, but for the imperialists, uh, the the colonialists, it's yes. But what's really important is a doll for my for my wife. Yes. Well, uh, and it, meanwhile, it, sorry, go ahead, Spencer. You first. Well, I was just going to say, I um, I think at our our last book in one of the many episodes we did over the last book, I was talking about the sort of Austin like character characterization of what was going on in the plot, but what we have mm-hmm. here is not dissimilar from Austin, um, from, from the sort of flip side of Austin, but we ha- what we have is a sort of like flip side of Wuthering Heights, mm-hmm. where we are actually getting to the colonial perspective of everything <laughs> that props up this nonsense mm-hmm. that happens in the sort of colonial re- regime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a particular note that uh, as much as the countryside is suffering, from what we see of the residency in, Co- in Calcutta, they're doing fine. They're living up. Mm-hmm. That it, they, as much as they are, as much as they are India. I mean, for a lot of British Indians, they've been living in India for generations. That they, they, they are living a much more a much different existence than those in the fields are. Yes. Um, I don't so the about- other thing, Spencer. Oh. Yes. Well. well did you know? Do you know who the the governor of Bengal was from 1939 to 1943? I'm presuming it's the guy they reference here. What? It is, in fact. I, I figured. Uh, did, did, I, I presume he did not die in a sudden doll accident, though. Uh, Wikipedia does not have. <laughs> did he die in 1943 or 1944? December of 1943. Okay, uh, I'd be curious to see how he actually died. I'm assuming it's not from this. I would have. I would know that if he died from the, died in this particular manner. I mean, who would know? It, it, it clearly was just a cover up. I mean, all the soldiers that went in there just died. I mean, if you just had a house where like everybody was just dead, like what would you report it as? 
no, this one would get out. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that one's not being hidden. Um, okay. Uh, well, one of the, one of the theme that we get into in this that uh, it's it's a it's a it's a bit of a, a theme that goes into it that I actually don't particularly like because it's a genre I kind of despise. But uh, this reminds me a hell of a lot of a lot of the classic exploitation movies in terms of revenge, of where there's a lot of it's a, it's an entire genre of where forgive me, but the rape and revenge films like I shall, I'll I'll spit on your grave or anything else like that, of where it's an individual that is harmed or a people that is harmed, and then the entire story is built around them getting revenge on the person that has harmed them or some representative of that, and that's the entire tale. It is person. There is a person, they're doing fine, they are harmed by another person or group, and then they get revenge on them, and then the tale just ends. Nothing else, nothing else really accomplished, nothing else really done. This is a lot of that to me. There's a, there's a lot of structural similarities, there's a lot of wish fulfillment that seems to go into this. I mean, as we talked about it being very much vehemently anti-colonial, a lot of what she's able and allowed to do here comes across as being a certain wish fulfillment from the people that were harmed, that... I wish I would have been able to do this, or I wish these people could have been blamed, or I wish I could have gotten revenge on those that I most blame for this. And it's not a genre I find very interesting. And I, I think in some ways this story comes across to me as being particularly blunt and not very well developed or characterized because of that, because of it being very much focused on that goal. Can you give me an example of what you would consider in that genre? Uh, well, I mean, it's a classic example of ex- exploitation. It's a vile film, but I Will Spit on Your Grave is one from the 70s that Roger oh, you, wrote a lot uh, of pieces about. You said that. I have no context for what that is. Uh, I mean, even some of the more modern films like Taken, offer, Taken or Kill Bill. Kill Bill is a, mod, is a subversion of that genre. It's being okay. purposely hearkening back to those. Um, Tarantino has ways of always working in enough to find some of his subversions to be particularly enjoyable. But another example of his that's a bit built on the revenge is in Glorious Bastards, mm-hmm. which is a film that's basically dedicated to individuals getting revenge and inflicting as much harm and devastation as possible that I don't particularly enjoy, even though it's got the other Tarantino witticisms in it. But for me, it just comes across as to what degree you get out of this is how much you can get into the mindset of the main character. And it's just a mind for this genre. It's not a mindset I can ever really appreciate as much, Uh, particularly when there's not really the villains in this are made to just be sadists just made to be indifferent sadists that just murder and rape and kill at their leisure, which they're, it's a, it's, a tro- okay. it, it's a trope associated with the colonial powers. Mm-hmm. It, it, I don't think it necessarily works as well for the British of where most of what you can assign to them is just callous indifference. I think, I think that comes across though. Yeah. I think across- what I get is only callous indifference here. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and like a, like they're, they're not even second class citizens. They, they don't even rate that. There's and a, and mm-hmm. I, I guess to me the like the the story speaks a little bit more as to first of all like history that I'm and this will be true whenever anything historical ever comes up that I'm not as familiar as you Spencer um, and and so I think that I think that there are worthwhile things that come out of it and I think that the the degree to which the um, the British just don't care. Mm-hmm. isn't doesn't seem very willful to me like it isn't a you know we're gonna go out and harm you it's oh yeah a bunch of natives were harmed but like but we're accomplishing what we need to like don't you understand that we're doing this for the good of everybody and like mm-hmm. i get that your village was destroyed but i don't see how that matters 
I and would and also, we would still like you personally to do this thing for us. I, I agree in terms of the main actions that happen with respect to the character, beyond the constant threats of just murder that they keep on throwing her, her, throwing her away. But a lot of the background descriptions just scream the Holocaust in terms of what's being talked about. In terms of, you know, this one, uh, this one tree of where the British would just randomly hang people by the hundreds because they could. Uh, in terms of the fields where the peasants were burned in them. Uh, the, the burned and charred bodies in the fields that the British were burning. That is, you know, Russian-Siberian steps in terms of what you're describing of the Germans invading, in terms of how much horror you're putting into that. Uh, in terms of the actual actions of the people we see, I agree. Indifference is what it screams. But there's just a lot of just casual brutality, or even just intentional sadism that seems that's described around the margins of this world. That's really guess- interesting, because I would describe it as on the margins, what is being described in what is happening in the situation is British indifference in pursuit of a quote-unquote larger cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think the individuals who are acting here, at least not necessarily the governor, I don't really think the governor has any fucking clue yeah. what's going on. Um, he's, he's Captain Bolton is perhaps, perhaps a little more vindictive, although I think he's acting on the whims of the governor. But I think what we're seeing in terms of what is happening in the fields as in relation to policy that was put in pr- place by Britain and what is happening to Indian citizens in reaction to what the policies that were put in place by Britain is casual collateral damage. Okay. I don't, I did, this does not strike me as personal. This strikes me as colonialism at work. Okay. Different now ways. I could, I could be wrong on that. I'm not sure because like my reference for this is like, I read colonial and, and post-colonial fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a, a very particular reference point for this. Um, which is not necessarily a historical mindset on what happened, but it is an effect of what happened. Okay. And an interpretation of an effect of what happened. But that's, that's my reading on it, which I think it gives me, and I, I think we're going to talk about this, it gives me a more sympathetic view to what is to this story sort of writ large. I think particularly when we frame these two in the context, these two stories in the context of each other, it made this an all the more blunt and harsh to me of where... Okay. Yeah. They're talking. They're talking in some ways about the same thing, but they're coming to completely different conclusions in terms of how we can discuss discussing it. And I, I'm just personally morally opposed to the conclusion this one seems to endorse with respect to its characters, and I also and, and the genre that it seems to fall into from what I'm just otherwise familiar with. Mm-hmm. And so that it doesn't resonate with me in that regard. Which I mean, that's that's perfectly. I mean, that's certainly fair. Um, and Spencer, you are also always so delightful because you are very clear to say it doesn't resonate with me in that regard, which is <laughs> you cannot argue with that, Spencer. I know. I'm an attorney. <laughs> I'm going to be as non-committal as possible to actually expressing an opinion. <laughs> but what are the theme? What are the themes do we do we think we can draw to this, and that we can just get into even more emotional reactions or comparisons between these sto- two stories? I think. I think we're ready I mean, to go into emotional reactions. Yeah, that's where yeah. okay. I, I think we've fairly well covered it. Um, well, well, I I, th- I think a theme of unfairness, of uh, outside factors governing your actions in a way that is totalitarian and just utterly unfair is a key theme that goes into both of these. Uh, one on a much more individual scale and much more one much more on a I am the representative of my people and what's being done to my people kind of scale. I think mm-hmm. also the humanity or lack thereof in war. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and how you deal with um, the lives of your countrymen versus other countrymen and what 
what you're willing to do to achieve your goals. Um, because I think that that's very much a sort of what was happening in in Bangladesh under the British rule. What a lot of it was sort of reverberations for like what they were willing to do in a war effort. And the um, last time I know is is really dealing with like the other side of that, essentially from the perspective of somebody in power. Um, or somebody of the little girl close to somebody in power and how they're dealing with, you know, what they're willing to do for, for a war for their people. Mm-hmm. So can I just ask a, ask a general question? And Spencer, I probably know what your answer for this is, but let's, <laughs> let's lay this out there. So which, I mean, we have paired these stories together. BJ, you mm-hmm. have paired these stories together. We have read them together. Um, <laughs> which story did you find... And I, I think you can go any number of directions with this, and I, I lay this out because I'm going to go any number of directions with this, but which story did you like more, find more effective, find more impactful, um, any of those kinds of things? Like, where do you land on that the, you read these two stories in a week? What did that do to you? Um, I can go first since nobody else is talking. Um, I liked the Last Time I Know story better as a story, and I think it was more emotional for me. Okay. Um, but uh, this story, which I'm going to pull up because... And now his lordship is laughing. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I, in many ways, found more interesting because of the style and, and the content. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I would... I think I, I would read again and maybe more heartily recommend the, as the last I may know. Hmm. Um as a this is a a story that i liked and i thought was a as a story something that was enjoyable to read Mm -hmm. and i think the and now his lordship is laughing was interesting um but and something that i think is sort of interesting to talk about and and it's like oh and you should read you know it's something that you should read as opposed to i think you will like reading this Mm -hmm. yeah I have a kind of similar view with respect to stories of where I thought, uh, as the last time I know, was a, a better structured and, in my mind, more successful story of where it had an objective, it, it had a structure that was built around that objective and had a very interesting way of doing it with respect to framing around the poetry and telling it from the perspective of this one character and her journey both outside and inside in terms of how people view her and what her role was going to be. That I think that is a better told story that works. I found uh and now his lordship is laughing to be interesting i don't regret reading it but i've already sent as the last time i know to a couple other people for them to read i will not be sending and now his lordship is laughing to them because i know exactly what they're going to say in response they're going to ask well what was the point of that and that's kind of my response to it of where i don't i don't get anything out of it of where i just it's a story it it tell it tells a tale it's has it has a particular perspective and then it's done and i don't i don't get any value out of the story other than at reading it and having it be interesting at the time dr george waterfield so this is i am i am going to break my midwestern mold and go i think slightly against all of this (laughs) you are losing your card for that i'm so sorry um but so i think my reaction and it has been, I think, a little bit solidified in our discussion. So I read, and I, actually, this is a question I would like to ask um, before, just to 
get this out there because I, I'm interested in it. Which story did you read first? Uh, the first one that BJ sent, as, I, the, la- as the last time I know. At least that's the first okay. one I opened. As did I, yeah. Okay, so I read, and now his lordship is laughing first. Hmm. Okay. And I read, and now his lordship is laughing, and I was like, okay, this is, because I was I was in on it while I was reading. And mm-hmm. I, but but at the same time, I was also like, okay, but there are some stylistic things here that are really fucking annoying. Um, <laughs> and then I read, as the last I may know, and I was reading both of them in the same morning, and I was thinking, okay, a lot of problems just as a story with, and now his lordship is dying. And then I read his last time I know, and I was like, oh, this is beautiful. This is really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And it, it is. It is a beautifully put together short story. And it left me with no feelings whatsoever. Interesting. I had no emotional response to this story. It is a perfectly crafted short story, in my opinion. Um, it, is, it is beautifully paced. Um, the language is delightful. And I don't honestly care about it. Uh, and I read, and now his lordship is laughing first, and I read it very early in the morning. I was like, God, this is fucking infuriating. (laughs) There is terrible language in here. There are awkward sentences. Mm -hmm. There are thing, there are tropes that I'm really uncomfortable with. And it is the one I find myself thinking about more going forward. Can you encapsulate why you think? Because I agree very much with your summary. There are two stories in terms of the quality of the writing and whatever else. But this one seems to resonate more with you. Do you know why? Right. And so it's the reaction that you're you're kind of questioning, right? Not, not questioning. Just curious. Oh, no, no. Sorry. I meant questioning in a in a nice sense, not a... <laughs> Justify yourself now. <laughs> Please tell me. Um, I think that there are a couple, of, a couple of things. I think that for me, having a character who is emotionally invested in what's going on, Mm-hmm. is one major thing. And we talked a little bit about uh, talking about, as the last I may know, that it, we're unclear about the emotional investment of our main character in what is oh. going on and where she comes down on it. I don't consider her the main character. Oh, who do you consider the main character? The president. Oh, that's interesting, because I consider Tej the main character. Oh. And this is... <laughs> well, so for part the sake of, of actually, variety, I thought the girl was the main character. <laughs> Well, part of, and I will say, kind of in response to this commentary, part of what I thought was actually really interesting about As the Last I May Know is that, like, I don't think it's particularly, I think it's a beautifully written short story. I don't think it, I I didn't particularly resonate with it as a short story, but I would be very interested in in either another short story, I guess, or a novelized version from one of these other two points of views. But, like, I don't. I care about this girl in the sense that she's a girl that's going to be killed for a larger cause. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I actually don't care about her as a character. Yeah. For me, I actually was, I mean, everybody's got their own reaction to these. But for me, I was actually getting to her mindset quite a bit just because I was, it's on a much more minor level. But for me, the oppressiveness of just societal pressures to be a particular thing or to Mm -hmm. perform in a particular way or what's expected of you, whether it's necessarily in your control or not. She seems to be a... A very hyper-emphasized example of that to the most extreme possible. Mm-hmm. Of um, another, another thing for me is too. Do you guys ever actually heard of the Fisher Principle that this that the story is written around? I saw it when I was sort of looking up about the story, but I don't know anything about it. Can uh, you it's explain actually, it to us, Spencer? It's it is actually name dropped in one of the comments. I saw that. Uh, yes, yeah, it's you, at the very end of the comments. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is. I I heard about this in. Um, 
I heard about this, I think it was back in um, high school when I was reiterated again in law school, of where it was a Harvard professor that basically put forward this exact idea is that, okay, well, if we want to stop nuclear war, if we want to make this a truly wise decision so we can count on whoever does this to make it a clear, this is the most extreme net, uh, action net that's now necessary, let's give them a body man, let's give them somebody that's very close to them, and let's embed in their heart a tiny little capsule that they need to cut out to get to, under the justification that, sorry, uh, tens of millions need to die and you need to be the first one to bring that about. And famously, he presented this to the Pentagon as, this is a plan I think we should put in place. And their response was, my God, that's terrible. I mean, having to do that would distort the president's judgment. He'd never push the button if you had to kill somebody. It's like, wow, you are embodying the whole damn point of why I just presented this. So that had always stuck with me, just how much... How, how easy it is to abstract violence, how easy it is mm-hmm. to make the violence faceless, and how valuable in some ways it would be to assign an innocence to it to represent the innocence that you're so casually removing. And that's a, that's a key theme in both of these stories, but yes. in, in, in this story it's embodied around a person, which for me makes it easier to work into, rather than it being a person responding to, as you guys put it, faceless indifference in the case of the other story. Yeah, it's that's kind interesting. Of, it's kind of, I mean, one story is kind of loaded on the idea of Let's kill the innocents so we can bring about where the other story has already started, of where that's already happened. Someone already killed that child and did that to me, and now I'm responding to it. It's kind of where in the point of this narrative we're starting. Well, yeah, I think that's, I, I do think that's a, a good point in terms of the idea of where we're starting in the narrative is, is really important. Um, and we're also starting from different, we're starting from different places of power as well i mean the order is clearly is clearly put forward as a more minor um offshoot of some philosophical things that are happening in the world it's a little unclear where the order actually like physically stems from um but they have power in the world mm-hmm. yeah they, they do uh, unqu- unquestionably so in a way that no no character that we actually care about in a damn sense in our other story does. She has a certain degree of yeah. very limited regional power, but it's in the sense of being an elder rather than being in any way necessarily official or governmental or elected or anything else along those lines. Whereas the order I... is... Sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I have a thing to say after this, but it's not. Go ahead. Well, one thing that you, you brought to mind uh, in terms of how these two main characters, I'm, 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 I'm going to refer to the young girl as our main character in the other stories because she's our main perspective on everything that we have. I know sure. this is funnily contentious between the three of us on who the main character is in that. <laughs> but a key difference between the two stories that you, you highlighted in terms of our ending is the sense of agency, of where it is unquestionable that our... I think our character in our other story has decidedly more agency than our young girl in our first story ever does. That mm-hmm. she has she has both a ability to express her will and a success in bringing it about. Whereas the closest thing we really ever get to see to our other character expressing her actual will to having agency in her world is almost a certain element of happiness and slavery come the end, if you want to interpret it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, which... I mean, with respect to the revenge genre, that's part of the appeal of it, of where it's providing a person who has been harmed, who has had agency taken from them, an opportunity to get it back. An opportunity to take it back, specifically from those that took it from her. And that's what our our main character, what what is, I'm blanking on her, Appa, of course, the Korean shop owner, is able to accomplish over the course of the story, is that she 
has agency, it is removed from her, and by the end she has claimed it back at the ultimate cost of her own life, but she has deemed that a worthwhile sacrifice to reclaim it. No, sorry, you were gonna you, you were gonna raise a point though in response to think something I was saying. No, I'm not going to anymore. But um, <laughs> <laughs> put the kibosh on that. Well, and I just I, I want to do a, a point of clarification on what you were just saying, so I I make sure that I understand what you were just saying correctly. Um, you were talking about our Bengali-based story. Yes, Appa. Okay. I, I was struggling to remember the name of that character, so I was being. I know. I just vague. wanted to make sure. Be, I, well, I wanted to make sure because you said at the end of your sort of synopsis of this that you that she took her own life at the end. No, she set herself in a, in a way that she was going to be killed. She she did not take her own life, but she engaged in oh, acts by which she will die. Okay. She fully... my, okay, sorry. The, the reason that I ask that and, and pinpoint on that is one of my questions is what happens at the end of this story? I think she which story? <laughs> Sorry, and now the lord, his lordship is laughing. I, I think she fully expects that she will be punished for her actions, and she will die from them. That she, she I mean, she even says that the the British will eventually learn and stop going in that room, and mm-hmm. then is basically working under the assumption that they're going to find her, and there's going to be repercussions. Yeah, she's sitting outside the manor. Like, yeah, yeah. She's 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 not running. She's not going anywhere. She's fully accepted. Like what they're going to presumably do. See, here's mm-hmm. the thing. I think she laughs herself to death. Oh. Oh. I think she makes this choice. And I, I mean, both of these these options are she sort of makes a choice, but I think she actively makes the choice because the last line is, and then she starts laughing. And, and Alpa begins to laugh. And okay, I think I that's see. her suicide. I don't think she's waiting. Interesting. Yeah, I, I almost interpreted her actions as being more like the biblical Jezebel in terms of she's killed the dictator or whatever else, and now she's willing to suffer the punishment for it. Um, but that's an interesting thought in terms of now she's in some ways dying by her own terms and own hand by submitting to the magic. I know, yeah, I don't think she's ever been willing to suffer the consequences, the, the quote-unquote consequences for her actions or, or whatever the repercussions are, because she was trying to kill herself by not eating. Or slash she didn't have food, but... (laughs) If this is the case, why would she even have the earplugs in? Because she wanted to see. She wanted to watch them die. Yeah, she's a witness. Yeah, but then she left the room and went out and sat somewhere else and is now seemingly far enough away from the magic. Can she... The story never really explains how the magic works, whether she can some way summon it to herself right there right now to then, you know, die by laughter. No, yeah, that, I, I mean, that's certainly true. And that's a sort of, we were having this conversation about um, kind of what is magical realism and what isn't. I mean, this is like a... This is playing know. jump rope with the concept. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't... I, I, would, I would interpret this as like, A, she decided to, to die of her own volition rather than be captured by sort of British functionaries. Um, hmm. But I would also, the, to the point of why doesn't she just die in the room... Why the fuck would she die in that room? <laughs> that sounds terrible. Yeah. Well, I can also see it being like she's showing that it is her power yes. that did this. That she was and not so... caught up in the crosshairs of right. the magic that she did. Yeah. That, I and mean, that's also how I like, interpret it. Yeah. Like rather than sort of like a suicide bombing, it's like, no, I killed them. Mm-hmm. And now I'm done. Which, yeah. which is why, which is why I interpreted her laughter at the end as more mockery. 
She's la she's laughing at the people that are now coming to claim her rather than trying to invoke her own death. Well, I think it can be both. Oh, it, it's it's still invoking her own death. It's just whether it's happening now <laughs> yeah. or later. Girl gonna and die. Yeah. She she um, does not she does not end this tale whether the story stops or not alive. No, that's that's true. I do. It's an interesting point as to how that death manifests. Um, we have two very death-filled stories here. We do. Yep, we did. And you know, it's it's interesting too because they both, in some ways, end at roughly the same point of where a certain yes. degree of ambiguity about how death will come and what manner it will come, but that death is to a certain degree inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, it's very possible that our young girl will not that our in our, in our first story is not going to be killed. But in which case, that sort of portends the end of the society that she operates in. But the ambiguity there yeah. being is that even if she is killed to, you know, protect the society, that may only succeed in making it bringing about the end of the entire world. Which she, which she, which is, is one of the things that just almost convinces her the ultimate futility of this, is that even if she, even if she believes that they're correct, that her death may, you know, be necessary right now, it's entirely uncertain to actually help anything. Which is part of the reason her position exists. Right, and mm-hmm. I think it's the other side of it is, I think her death is going to happen in the context of the story. It's just a question of whether the president does it or the incoming army does. Right, which, yeah. you know, this is, there's a certain element of futility attached with the death in our other story, of where this death will not solve anything. It will not stop the famine. It will not end British rule. It will not, uh, well, if, you want to, if the story wants to frame this, that that guy died and then three years later the British were kicked out explicitly because of this event, sure, okay. <laughs> uh, but it's more just of a, it's a, it's a going the, it's taking this from a much more limited scope of where this is yeah. a character accompli- getting hers. This is a character, whatever else happens, whatever else I can't, whatever else is bigger than me, I can't achieve that, but I can get mine and this is mine and I got it. And there's a, there is a success attached to that. Even if it is in, you know, in blood murder and what is a pretty damn horrific scene and all of them going out the way they do. That's certainly true. And I have, I have many more things to say to you, Spencer, about whether this is this is sort of personal or systemic revenge that is happening. Um, but we are coming up on an hour and a half of this episode. <laughs> we are. Good enough point to stop. <laughs> um, so off pod, Sarah will yes. talk to you about whether this is institutional or personal revenge. But well, it, in well, the meantime. A last question before we leave. Yes. I, I think it's always a lovely, lovely way to frame this. Uh, BJ, you expressed your thoughts on this. I can express my thoughts. Sarah, if you were going to recommend these stories on to other people, which yeah. one do you think would? Which one do you think we would recommend more, or which one would you be more confident in recommending? However, you choose. To I, I, I will say that I would be more confident in recommending to more people. Um, as the last I may know. These are two terrible fucking titles, by the way. These are, are both bad. really bad titles. Very um, bad titles. <laughs> but I, I would be, uh, despite the full-throated defense that I am lodging uh, for my reaction <laughs> mm-hmm. and what I think is going on in And Now His Lordship is Laughing, I would certainly be more comfortable recommending As the Last I May Know because I do think it is a more technically proficient short story. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think... That the prob- I, w- I would hazard a guess that the, the things that I like, and I'm going to sound like an asshole for saying this, and I don't mean it this way, but the things that I like about our other story um, w- are more um, suited to sort of like writing a graduate seminar about not enjoying a story. 
You've talked about the struggle of getting between those two different mindsets now that you've left the particular graduate community. It's re- it, No, it's really hard. And the As Last I May Know is a better short story. Mm-hmm. It's a better story. Um, I think that there are a lot of, and we've all talked about this, and now His Lordship is laughing, as an interesting story. Um, and I think it invokes more discussion, I think, than... Well, we... Uh, yeah. If you so, take so, the minutes we have devoted to each of these stories, if we just did the calculation, yeah, that's true. We have talked more about, and now his lordship is laughing. That is possibly yeah. because I have pushed the point of it, but <laughs> and partly, so, re- part, partly because it pissed me off, which is a rare enough thing on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. It really is, and Spencer, I really appreciate that. Um, but no, I, I would feel more comfortable recommending as the last I may know because I did like it. I thought it was a very successful short story. I think that the other thing that I sort of get the sense of, and tell me if I'm wrong, I think that my concept of what what you're saying, Sarah, to a certain extent is Mm -hmm. I think that there is a sense that the second story could be made into a great short story, Mm -hmm. and the first story is a good one, as is. Yeah, I think that's true. There are any number of problems with the second short story. Um, And it's, like, quite honestly simultaneously over and underwritten which is a real feat in and of itself um yeah but i do think that it it feels unfinished to me but i do think it could be something exceptional yeah i think i'm I'm really not sure where the first short story would go to improve yeah this this is the you would give the first short story like a b somewhere around there yeah. The the second short story would get a C plus with a lot of red ink, and I want to see the next draft. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I th- I think in some ways that's just part of how differently they go about writing a short story. Of where mm-hmm. the first one really much embodies the idea that brevity is the soul of wit. It is spare. It has no excess. Yes. It has no extra material that's thrown in there. It has a decisive purpose, and it is going about that as briefly and precisely as possible, which comes across as mm-hmm. crisp and makes it very readable. It makes it it works that way. There are so many more pieces to the second story. I don't think they're well presented. I don't think in some ways they're linked together well. But there's a host and chunk of parts that go into this. It is meaty. It, it feels like there's a lot of depth that goes into it. It just never really finds a way through it in a way that I find ultimately mm-hmm. satisfying. But like you said, because it has so many more working parts, it can do a lot more with those. It's just you're seeing the potential rather than necessarily what was accomplished. Yeah. Yeah, I think but, that's fair. Uh, um, so if, if our listeners are interested in seeing more potential <laughs> instead of what is actually accomplished, <laughs> where can they go, BJ? <laughs> what um, are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we actually have uh, some new places that you can get our content and websites. Um, but the main one that always exists um, is mangumtalks.com. Um, you can find all of our content, including Whiskey on the Weekend, Mangum Talks TV, um, our podcast within podcast, Pottering Around. Um, we now have a, we'll see how often it's updated, YouTube channel uh, for Mangum Reads, where we have some content mostly relating to Pottering Around, but maybe there'll be other offerings in the future. Um, and we have our own Facebook page now, which is Mangum Reads. Um, so if you can, if you want to be entertained by any of that content it's readily searchable and available and we look forward to uh bringing you more in the future and hearing any comments questions or anything else that, that you want to uh fling our way All right. and with that have a good night y'all <laughs> looking forward to our two new two new short stories next week mm-hmm.